Now, if you're visiting with us, we've been looking at the final year of Christ's ministry. His ministry is really split up into three sections. A first year of inauguration where he calls disciples. And a second year of opposition, uh, sorry, popularity. Second year of popularity. Where he performs most of his miracles in uh, Galilee, in the north of Israel where he's from. And a large section of the people follow him enthusiastically. And they see his power and the wonders that he's performing. But that changes into a final year that we can call a final year of opposition. That really comes to a head when he multiplies the food to feed 10,000 people on one occasion. 5,000 men with women and children in Galilee itself, and they try and force him to become king, they want to crown him, and he refuses it, and that turns the people against him, because he's not going to fulfill all of their messianic expectations. That's hard for the Lord. He goes over to Galthuma, um, to a Gentile region, and performs the same miracle again for the Gentiles, at that time feeding what the Gospel says, 4,000. And the Pharisees come to him and demand a sign from heaven that he would prove that he's greater than Moses and he refuses to give the sign. That causes an official rejection from Israel towards Christ. But there's something just as difficult for Christ as he goes through this period and that's not only this official opposition that can happen but also the difficulties among his own disciples. A large group of them left that synagogue in Capernaum and walked with him no more. And he's with the twelve. And the difficulties he sees in the twelve cause him a grief of soul just as much as the large official rejection. And we've seen some of that, uh, that there are problems in the twelve themselves. And they're of no real comfort to Christ or support during this final year. Things have gone wrong in them, and they're there, and they're believers, at least the eleven are believers, we know that Judas was not. But what goes on among them is a constant weight on Christ, something he prays about, and something that, that concerns him, and that he is constantly having to bring up uh, to them. And what we saw was that Christ came down the Mount of Transfiguration, after being encouraged by his father and the disciples failed to cast out a demon that they had the authority to cast out and that failure was ridiculed by the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples themselves are very confused as to why they couldn't cast it out and they ask him in private why and he tells them it's because of the condition of their heart that unbelief has grown up among them there is a lack of faith a lack of freshness and love for himself. And they began to rely in some way upon themselves. So, like us, if we rely on ourselves, we will fail uh, to serve God properly and to achieve things for God. Because the self-reliance cannot produce spiritual things. Only a communion with Christ and a life in communion with Christ can make that grace flow into us to be able to serve Him properly. They came down 40 miles from Mount Hermon, 
back into Capernaum, though there was this great opposition. And Jesus does not want anyone to know he's there. But you'll remember some tax collectors from the temple came to test whether he was going to pay the tax. And we saw the significance of that. So they're in this house in Capernaum. We think it's Peter's house that he usually stayed in, that Peter owned a house in Capernaum. Something else now happens in this house. And we read about it in Mark 9 and at the beginning of Matthew 18. What happens is that Christ is aware that as they came back from the mountain on the way to Capernaum, that there was a secret discussion going on among the twelve that he was aware of. Uh, they thought they had, uh, they had done it um, carefully and that he, he didn't know about it, but he's aware that this discussion has happened. And when he's sitting in the house with them, when they arrive, he, he asks them what it is about. And we're told that they wanted to remain silent because they knew that they shouldn't have been talking about this. It's interesting that um, the disciples instinctively want to talk about this. It's attractive to them. Uh, they're tempted to speak about it. They yield to that temptation. They probably tell themselves after they've spoken about it, well, there are good reasons we spoke about this. But all the Lord has to say is, what were you speaking about? And there's something in the Christian's heart that knows we shouldn't have been talking about that. And that, that kind of thing happens to us. We can justify all kinds of things. But when the Lord actually speaks to us clearly, uh, there's a way in which we do what Adam and Eve did. We hide in the garden like the disciples are doing here. And we, we don't want to deal with that, but the Lord graciously brings it out. And we see here what that discussion uh, concerned. And it's surprising remarkable that they're even discussing this. What they're discussing is which one of them would be the greatest. Mark's account tells us that it's more forward-thinking, that they're wondering in the future which one of them would be the greatest. Matthew records here that they're really asking who then just is the greatest. Which one of us is the greatest? Or two of us or three of us? Which among us are the, the really prominent disciples? And you can see, that you might look at that and be shocked that they're even discussing this. But we'll see as we go on that this is something that happens to us uh, too. Um, the Lord had, what's shocking about the fact that they're discussing this before we properly go into it, is that the Lord keeps telling them that they're going to suffer. And I'm not going to repeat all the details of that because we've seen it week after week. There are three accounts in Matthew where he just repeats the same statement to the disciples. When he changes his message and he begins to reveal to them the great suffering that he will have and the great suffering they will have, he tells them, the time is coming soon that I will be delivered up and I will suffer many things at the hands of the leaders of Israel. And he tells them, you must take up your cross and follow me. You will suffer. And he repeats it, and he repeats it, and he repeats it. The remarkable thing is that they're just filtering that out. It doesn't matter how many times he tells them, they filter out the parts they don't want to hear. And I think the key is that when he keeps mentioning 
at the end of each of these, on the third day I will be raised up. That's the part that they're interested in. So watch for that, my dear brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ and a follower of Christ, watch for that. That as you read through the scriptures, do it systematically, do it in a balanced way, and accept all of the colors of the canvas. Accept it all and put it together as it's given. It's too easy to filter certain things out and to focus on things that, that our hearts are naturally inclined to, whatever that is for each one of us. Their hearts are inclined here to exaltation and success and their ideas of the way God works, that when Messiah comes, we will be exalted, we will govern probably over the Roman Empire, certainly Israel, we will govern with him. We've been chosen by him. And he's saying on the third day, he will be raised up. And that is what we want, so let's talk about that. They talk about it. Which one of us will be the greatest when he's raised up? And when he comes in power, which which of us will be with him? And what will he give us? What position shall we have? And they're completely missing the most important and immediate part of the message which is that they must suffer for a long time, long before they'll ever be exalted. In fact, they they learn towards the end of their life that actually they will not be exalted until they enter heaven. And their final exaltation will not happen until the Lord returns and renews the earth, and then they shall be on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. They thought it would happen in this life. That's why they are discussing it. And we can see... And we've already seen, friends, uh, so many examples around these chapters of the disciples not listening and the Lord having to repeat many, many times to them. He says to them several times, you do not understand because your hearts are hard. You do not understand because you're not responding to my signs and my words properly. There are so many examples around these uh, chapters of them doing that. So that's, that helps us understand how we end up in this condition, and you may be in that condition. That helps us understand how it happens. Uh, a hardness developing in the heart, though you're even walking near the Lord in some way, a hardness comes in almost imperceptibly to you, but seen clearly by the Lord, so that it covers the heart And many of the words Christ says, and many of the things that he wills in some way to do in your life, they do not take root, because there is a shell there that just stops it taking root and bringing forth fruit. That is what happens in the disciples. That hardness and that that lack of listening spiritually to Christ that we saw so many times, when he multiplied the bread and all of these things, and they didn't understand, they didn't benefit from it. And he tells them, your hearts are hard. Where does that come from? What is the cause of that? Why does the Lord come into this house in Matthew 18 and teach for the whole chapter the things he does? This is one of the great discourses of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is one The Sermon on the Mount of Olives at the end of the Gospel is one. Here's another one. This is a long discourse that Matthew reports of Christ's sayings. What is Christ getting at at the beginning of this chapter to show us how this happens? 
Well, the answer to that is pride. That's the answer. It is pride. We know that because he tells them in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He tells them they have to humble themselves. That tells us immediately that the problem is its opposite. It is pride. We saw a few weeks ago a man who was consumed with unbelief and disciples that were consumed with unbelief when the boy was even possessed. And I said to you that unbelief is the root sin. And if unbelief is the root sin of the mind, then pride is the root sin of the heart. And these are just native to us. We don't have to ask if they're there. They are there. It's part of what we are after the fall. That's what a human being is. A human being is made in God's image and retains much of that image from God. But the history of the world and the history of man is that his mind embraces unbelieving thoughts where he discounts and questions God's word as a root in his mind that is connected to a root in the heart that is called pride. From the beginning it was so. Even the fall of the angelic world was due to pride. Pride was found in you, O Lucifer, son of the morning. That is why Lucifer fell. The, the, the one who loved God, the one who loved the Son of God, Lucifer, who was controlled by the Holy Spirit, Lucifer, who was in communion with Father, Son, and Spirit, after the creation of all things, yet we're told in Ezekiel that pride was found in his heart. And that pride is a desire to be exalted. It's an envy of someone else's exaltation. He wanted these things for himself. And the history of our world and the history of my life and your life is a direct consequence of that pride. It's an awful thing, a mysterious thing, how it came into him. But it is a root and a parent uh, sin. The parent sin of unbelief and the parent sin of pride come together and give birth to all the other sins. Unbelief says, I'm not going to accept that God says to me in the garden that I will die if I take this. Unbelief says, God says I will die but I will not die. And pride says, I want to be like God. Pride says, I can rule myself. Pride says that the reason for my existence mainly is me. These are awful things that came into our world and we find them spreading out like a stream through all humanity and the stream, one of them reaches here, surrounding Christ, flowing through the hearts of his disciples. What is pride, my friends? What is it? It's an unbalanced, unrealistic, inaccurate assessment of our own worth and what we deserve. It's a, an inordinate desire for exaltation that doesn't really belong to us. 
and not just to do with us, but for those around us. It is a desire that we would have that in comparison with others. And that's an important part of pride that we need to get right as we as we are speaking about this. Pride isn't just, I like me, I love me, I worship self. But pride is only satisfied when it worships self and then looks at others as not worthy of the same amount of worship. Now I know I'm giving you a lot of uh, definitions here, but it's important to understand what pride is. We make mistakes about our definitions of these things. We, we think pride is this and pride looks like that, but that's scripturally what it is. And we see it in the disciples. It, it's not just that they, they think it would be nice to have these positions. They want these positions, but they want them instead of the others. Do you see that? Which one of us will be the greatest? They want these positions to the detriment of these other brothers. That is pride. It wants self to be satisfied, and it wants some worship for self. That's what Peter, James, and John, if I'm, if I'm accurate in my understanding of it, at least those have that in their hearts at this time, that their main concern even isn't the worship of Christ at this point. There's a big component in each of their hearts that wants some of that glory for themselves. And that is pride. And it's opposite. It's humility. We know that. Whoever humbles himself, verse 4, he will be great. It's not the proud that will achieve the greatness. It's the humble. And humility is the beautiful, a peaceful um, opponent to pride. Humility exists where pride has been completely rooted out and it's vacated the building. The atmosphere that's left is humility. And if pride is all that, it's in Satan and we find it in ourselves and it wants that exaltation. Humility is its opposite. Humility is a lowliness and a littleness. Humility is an attitude um, that looks at oneself as low and looks at oneself in in our meanness, in our, in our baseness. Let me just explain what I mean by that. Humility looks at God and gets a sight of God, sees the glorious nature of God. Humility sees that God is our creator. Humility sees that God is infinite in power and majesty and glory. And in light of seeing it, humility then looks at ourselves as small creatures of the dust. And that's true even before the fall. That, that is, Adam and Eve were humble. The angels are humble, the unfallen angels. Humility isn't admitting you're a sinner. But that comes later. Humility is something that is built into the creature from the beginning. The angels right now that, that see God in glory and that come to us as ministers of salvation and that go between us and God, helping us and guarding the church, the warriors of God, the soldiers of God, 
these angelic beings are humble. Inside their heart, there is a peace and a lowliness and a willingness to cover themselves before the majesty of God. And when the angels look at God, they have an accurate um, assessment of themselves as compared to God. They look at God and God is great and glorious and immense and they see themselves as nothing. That is what our humility ought to be like. That when we as people that come from Adam and Eve, when we look at God, we should see not that he is quite great, not that he is just more powerful than us, uh, not just that he is somewhat more righteous than us. When we get a true sight of who God is, we should be very aware that we are made of dust and flesh, and that we are frail and that we die, and that his mind and his knowledge are great, and he knows all things, and we know so very little. That he creates a cosmos, and a heaven and a hell. His power is immense, but we can barely, we create little things. Our, our strength is so weak in comparison to God. He has been there forever, he had no beginning and all of these things. We appear for a moment and are entirely dependent on his life in us. Now, you think about that. If you get a true, a true sight, I'm talking about a true sight, not a pretend one, but if you truly encounter God, it will create that humility. And not only his greatness as creator, but the added problem of the fact that we have become sinners before him. God created the world in a sense that there would be no sinners, that they should still be humble before him. But we've added a reason to be humble. That for you and I in the world right now, we can not only look at God as great and majestic and have a sight of ourselves and humble ourselves before him, but we see him as a righteous God and a holy God. One, in, one who never does wrong and has, who has no darkness in him. Who has a, he is a beautiful spirit who loves beauty and righteousness and holiness and love and all that is good and pure and wonderful. And when we see ourselves in light of that added thing, it shines on us and we are the opposite. We are not only small creatures, as Isaiah says, like grasshoppers before him. We are not only grasshoppers before him, but we are contaminated and we are um, morally against him. We, we do things all of the time in rebellion and in contamination against him that deserve his righteous response to that. You put all of that together and we ought to be humble. We ought to say with Job, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you, and I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. There is Job, the most righteous man of his generation, and when he came close to God in a way he hadn't before, he abhorred himself. That's exactly what Christ is saying here. This is someone who has humility and not pride.
This is someone who sees God properly and that does something uh, to him. Before I leave that, can I say that if you are on the edge of the kingdom or seeking Christ, if Christ says to you what he said to that scribe that asked that great question, and Christ said to him, Man, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. If you are seeking Christ, then he will humble you in this way when you come into that kingdom or if you are being uh, reacquainted with Christ after being far away from him. Just expect that he will humble you. Don't be distressed by it. It's difficult when you're being humbled. It happens to many Christians. I remember times where things came into my life and God did them and at the time I thought God is trying to hurt me, he's trying to crush me. It is him trying to humble you. He will make things difficult. He will take certain things away. He will make you aware of your sin. You'll begin to see how weak your faith is, how, how weak your repentance is. You'll see all these failings around you and in you, and you will say to yourself, how, how can I enter this kingdom? This kingdom is for righteous people. This kingdom is for those who have it all figured out. That Jesus only accepts people who have figured all of the deal out before they sign the contract. And Jesus says, no, your deal will fall apart. You might come into the kingdom very distressed, and that's a good thing. Because whoever humbles himself as this little child will be great in the kingdom and he will enter. Christ will make you childlike to enter. He will contract your life sometimes and contract your soul. And all of the props you have in your life will contract you into the size of a child. Christ said the, the way is narrow to enter the kingdom and we could also say that the gate is low to enter the kingdom. Some people crawl in to the kingdom and that's good. Christ makes this clear in the scriptures that he convicts of sin, righteousness and judgment to bring you in. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the poor in spirit that are blessed. It's those who mourn for their sin that are blessed, Christ said in the Sermon of the Mind. If you can see that mourning, if you can see that poorness of spirit, if you are being made meek, if he is humbling you and convicting you of these things, then you need to look at him as the answer to these things, as him calling you with his hand outstretched, drawing you into the kingdom humbly. So don't despair, my friend, if these things are difficult and you're distressed. Look through them to Jesus Christ and see them as a means by which he is humbling you to bring you in to the kingdom. What else can we say about this pride in the time that we have left? Let me say a couple of things about the pride and about the antidote to that pride. This pride that's in them, as we've discovered, we have to go back to Genesis in these places to see what pride is and where it came from. We find it here in the disciples. What can we learn from how it took root in their hearts and how it developed? Why are they talking about who would be the greatest? It's because then, their Jewish brethren, the scribes and uh, the rabbis, debated often as to who would be the greatest. 
in the kingdom of heaven. They were very interested in him. Messiah would come, and we'll all have seats at the table, and we'll all be at the feast of the Messiah. Where will we sit? And they used to sit and discuss these things for long periods of time. And you can see the kind of thing that they talk because uh, when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples, remember they asked Jesus in the previous chapter, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Chapter 17, verse 10. Now they asked that because I think they're wondering, will Elijah's place be higher than us? Elijah was going to be given a great place in God's kingdom, so was Moses and others. And when they see Moses and Elijah, rather than learning that lesson that Moses and Elijah spoke of Christ's sufferings, they come down the mountain and they're interested in, well, why, why did the scribes teach that Elijah will come? And why does the Old Testament say that Elijah will come back? And how does he fit into all this? Because this is the new covenant and you've chosen us twelve and where will Elijah be? They're interested in these positions. They also heard Jesus say that there was none greater born among women than John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist, and he, in a sense, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They heard Christ saying these kinds of things, and they're wondering how it will all work out. They have a, a, a wrong kind of interest in these things. Where else did it come from? I think it came from the fact that the Lord had, um, in our first sermon in this series, he'd taken them to Caesarea Philippi and he'd singled out Peter. So he told Peter that he would be a rock and he told Peter that he would have a position of priority even among the disciples. Now that would pique Peter's interest and the other eleven. Up until that point they had just been followers and now they begin to be given positions. For Peter, the rock. And on this rock I will build my church, Jesus says. And Peter's beginning to think, what does that mean about me? And the others are looking at it saying, well, if he's the prominent one, the church will be built on him. Where do we fit in to this? Not only that, but when Peter then tried, grabbed Christ and took him to the side and rebuked Christ for saying he would suffer at the hands of, uh, of the leaders, Jesus called Peter Satan and said, you are an offense to me and a stumbling stone. So this keeps the disciples' interest. One moment Peter is going to be the leader and the next moment he's kind of deposed from it. You'll remember that happened in Israel actually and Reuben and the other brothers were meant to lead Israel. And because of their immorality, God kept removing them from their positions. And eventually Judah became the heir, the fourth son. Uh, he, he inherited what Simeon and Reuben should have inherited. And maybe the disciples were thinking something similar. Peter has messed this up. Just being told he was going to be great. And then Jesus called him Satan. He hasn't called us Satan. And James and John, I think, especially begin to think, well, there's a chance for us here. There's a chance for us to get Peter's place. He, Christ has not rebuked us in this way. These things begin to develop. And just the basic fact, too, 
of the fact that um, he selected three of them to go up this hill. He didn't take all of them with him. That's a test. He took three with him and told them, you're not to tell the others what happened up there. Now you, you imagine that was us. You imagine us in that situation. One of us gets called Satan by Christ. One of us is told that the church will be built on our testimony. Uh, what, then three of us are selected by Christ to go up a mountain. And the other nine are at the bottom saying, what is going on up there? And why are we not up there? Why are we stuck down here? And Pete, uh, James and John are up the mountain with Peter. They, say, they see Peter saying something foolish. And Christ rebukes him for it when he says, we're going to build tents for Moses and Elijah. And, 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 and Christ just, Peter looks a fool. I think James and John came down the mountain thinking, there's nine down there. Peter's obviously not up to this. Maybe, maybe we will be on the right hand and the left. And you'll see that they discussed that and discussed it with their mother. We read about it in Matthew 20. They then discussed it with their mother. And they asked their mother to ask Christ. They didn't ask themselves. They got their mother. Maybe Christ would respond better to the mother than to them. Maybe they know that Christ is going to teach them a lesson in humility. They ask the mother, maybe Christ will be more kind to our mother. Now, look at all this, friends. Not as an interesting Bible study, but as a mirror for me and a mirror for you. This is humanity. This is always in the church. The envy for one another and positions and all of these things. When someone is rebuked or someone makes a mistake or someone messes up in some way and how that's viewed and then some people are selected to have certain experiences, a certain nearness to the Lord or maybe it's something like the pastor and the elders and they go up the mountain. Not every pastor and elder gets to go up the mountain. Some of us never make it up a mountain like this. But you imagine that happens. And the pastor and the elders are trying to be close to Christ and maybe you look at the three and you say, oh, well, who says they can? You see the kind of thing that can happen. Or it's among friends. Or just among our congregation. I'm not speaking about anything specific here. This is just the text. This happens in every church. We have to watch for this. Prominence. Experiences. Position. And with the best will in the world that we think we have, we find ourselves responding badly to these blessings that God gives. And instead of looking to the Lord and saying to the Lord, this is about you and I, this is about what you think, this is where you would have me and where you will place me, it begins to be about, that's what this person is doing. This is what this person has said. Uh, this is what this person wants. And there begins to be this kind of thing among God's people that are among God's people in this passage. Jesus should have followers behind him here that have followed him back to Capernaum and are ready to go to Jerusalem and he even died. But instead, they're arguing. Because they want these things. We have to make sure that we don't fall into that. So the disciples had all these experiences and it's causing this problem in them. And we have to watch that we don't find the same things in our own hearts. 
and these things can be found. What happens when we do what our brothers in the passage have done? What happens when we step away a bit from Christ and get on with our lives and start to look at our tasks and our callings and just spend ourselves completely on them without looking at the Lord? What happens when we begin to not listen? What happens when we begin to look horizontally around us or those around us and begin to make all of these things the main thing rather than him the main thing? Uh, what happens? We find the same things in our own heart. We will find ambition. We will find self-righteousness. We will find a, a mask or even a pretense of humility. We will find that we will set all of our feelings about ourselves based on our own material success, our own work position. The dominance we have in our lives over certain job situations and, and people, and the way our family is viewed in our community, and the success of us and our families, or our husband or our wife, even our children. That, that, can, that can, Jesus speaks about a child here, and the strange thing is, the introduction of children into a family, a beautiful thing, that we all feel fuzzy and warm about, but that can be used by the devil within five or ten years of destroying the spirituality of a family because the family can end up having idols in it. And that is connected to our pride. We make idols out of children for ourselves. It's not for their sake. It's an extension of the way we want to be viewed in these things. A lot of the time there are exceptions, obviously. And... Other things that can come from this concoction are things like anger, gossip, things like that. When, when ambition, self-righteousness, false humility, material success, a desire to appear great, when all of these take hold, then when certain things um, do not serve that, we will respond to it with a destructive attitude, with anger. Or when certain, when our will isn't done, or we are not satisfied, and our self-exaltation is not satisfied, we will gossip. And it's done under the guise of spirituality and all of these things. So, see that picture I painted for you there? We have to watch for this. We have to watch that we are not ambitious. Here, or at work, or in our communities, Christians should not be ambitious. Christians can desire certain things to glorify God and even ascend in the workplace or in the community, but they should never be ambitious. If they never get any of that, it shouldn't bother them at all. And if they do get it, when they ascend to that position, they must do it with humility at all times for the service of others and the service of God. We have to watch for self-righteousness. And the other things I've mentioned, we have to watch for these things. When uh, we enter a situation like the disciples here and we progress this way, we, when we step away from Christ and we don't abhor ourselves anymore like Job did, when we don't see ourselves truly, and we don't see our reason to be humble, self-righteousness will grow. We're not neutral. Self-righteousness will grow in that situation. And then we will 
that our attitude will be this. I want this position like the disciples had, and I want this success and glory like the disciples had, because I deserve it. And because I'm good. And because I understand what God requires of me and myself or my wife or my family. We are above the average Joe. And we are needed and blessed, a blessing to other people. And we build our own little kingdom with that. And we become self-righteous. We sit in our homes and we look at those around us. And we look at other people in the street. And we go into the store or we go to a community event and we arrive there like peacocks. Showing our feathers. Because of all our achievements like these disciples. And we say, how can we help you? Because you are very blessed to even know us. That is self-righteousness. And a false humility always comes along with that. Most people are not self-righteous in the sense that they put it up on a big sign and say, look, look at me, I'm self-righteous. They clothe it in humble language. They, they clothe their world and their work and their family or whatever. They'll speak about it in a way that sounds uh, humble. The disciples did that many times. They, they, were, they did try to appear sometimes that they, they didn't have this condition. But um, this uh, false humility will come in. Remember Judas, when, when Christ then accepted the great gift from Mary, when she covered him with that, you know, $20,000 bottle of perfume. And 